Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading nuclear deterrence experts for a lively discussion on current topics. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Deterrence Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Okay, welcome into the newest installment of the NucleCast podcast of the Advanced Nuclear Weapons Alliance Deterrence Center. I, of course, am your host, Adam Wilder, Strategic Advisor to NYDC. And our guest today is Mr. Peter Husey. Peter has a very long and distinguished career in Washington, working on national security issues. Thanks for being with us today, Peter, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Adam, for all that you've done in putting that book together about which we're going to be speaking. Yeah, so uh, you bring up the book. Uh, Of course, we're talking about uh, a book that we did together uh, last year in 2020 during COVID. It was our our pet project for COVID. That book is called Guide to Nuclear Deterrence in the Age of Great Power Competition. And as you know well, uh, we spent... uh, a generation focused on Iraq and Afghanistan. And in recent years, we have refocused our efforts on a rising China and a resurgent Russia. And and so as we focus on these new peer competitors, uh, one of the things we did was we took a look at uh, the nuclear enterprise and we took a look at nuclear deterrence and its relevance today. And so what I wanted to talk to you about was you wrote two chapters. And those chapters were focused on strategic stability mm-hmm. and the ICBM leg of the triad. Right. And so with, with your 40 years of insight, I guess the first thing that we really ought to talk about is strategic stability over time. Because you've been there since the Reagan era and you've watched the role and importance of strategic stability shift and shape over time. So as you look at strategic stability today, are there any lessons from the last four decades that you would say are relevant today and should guide us as we look to the future of you know, nuclear stability? Yeah, ab- absolutely. During most of the Cold War, our principal concern was a Russian invasion of Western Europe, which we feared would precipitate our having to use nuclear weapons to stop them, or the Russians would use nuclear weapons and conventional weapons in combination in going into Western Europe. The other concern was, of course, North Korea going into uh, South Korea, and also to some degree China trying to take over Taiwan. The lesson is that most scenarios about the use of nuclear weapons are going to involve a crisis or a conflict at the conventional level. And you had asked me, what is deterrence and what is stability? Stability is preventing the other bad guy from thinking they can use nuclear weapons first or at any time, and that the consequences of using nuclear weapons would be a disaster. That's what deterrence is, and it's both crisis stability, meaning you don't go to conflict, but also, God forbid, if there's a conventional conflict among the great powers, that it doesn't escalate to a nuclear level. 
Now, we've had some incidences in the past where, particularly amongst arms control advocates, where they've said, hey, uh, we, we've come you know, to the brink of nuclear war. And so part of the argument for uh, limiting nuclear modernization today is that if we have fewer systems, if we have a smaller arsenal, that strategic stability is better preserved with smaller arsenals and fewer systems. Uh, what say you, is, is this a good idea or is this a bad idea? Well, it all depends on the meaning of the word smaller or reduced. For example, I want bombers around to signal the bad guy. I can put them up in the air. I can send them. We do it a lot. Uh, that tells the adversary we're serious, but it doesn't commit us to conflict. And then you have the submarines and said, no matter how much you want to hit us with, we will always be able to come back with the submarines at sea that are survivable. And there you're talking about, as I guess, 400 to 600 and some odd weapons, warheads. But I want the ICBMs because if you're going to try to hit me with less than an all-out attack, most of my ICBMs are going to be available. And given the fact they're in the middle of the United States, you can't attack them without attacking the sovereign U.S. And that is going to guarantee a response from the president of the United States. Now, if you go to real low levels, like get rid of the ICBMs, which are 400 missiles, you're going to have 10 targets which if the bad guys take out, we're out of the nuclear business. Three bomber bases, two sub bases, and somewhere between four and six submarines at sea, all of which can be taken out with non-nuclear systems. So as a number of people have pointed out, senior military people and senior civilians in both the Obama administration and Trump administration, you're bringing North Korea to the table as a competitor that they could take out in conjunction with Russia and China those 10 systems, and we're out of the nuclear business. For example, if you got rid of ICBMs, which people think we should, some do, you would have not only 10 targets, but your maximum ability to deploy weapons would be no more than we have today. Meaning no upload, no hedge, no insurance policy in case the Russians broke out of the New START Treaty. You'd also reduce the number of unalert weapons by over 50%. And the platforms that you would have, you reduced by 65%. So that kind of reduction is very damaging and very destabilizing. Right now, we have over 500 systems deployed at sea, on land, and given enough uh, warning, we could put our sub uh, bombers in the air. That's an impossible task for a bad guy or adversary to try to preemptively take out in a crisis. So. It's stable in that is Ambassador Paul Nitze once said he wants the Russians always to sit down around the table and say, not today, comrade. Yeah, so it sounds very much like a stable balance of terror. Yes. And so as we think about, uh, you know, in particular, as I think about some of the, the systems that the Russians and the Chinese are developing. So as the Russians develop hypersonic capabilities and as the both Russians and Chinese in that instance, and as the Russians in particular have developed some long range, uh, low observable cruise missiles. Uh, in my own analysis, what I've seen is that if you were, for example, were to remove the ICBM leg of the triad, and as you note, we reduce the number of of targets that it would take to essentially 
eliminate the United States' ability to respond uh, to nuclear weapons use, that can be an enticing target. Absolutely. And to me, one of the things that I don't understand, particularly for you know our, our friends in the arms control community, so you and I, neither one of us want to go to war. And neither one of us want a war with Russia or China, either conventional or nuclear. And deterrence is the way we seek to prevent war. And for us, we understand that the Russian leadership and the Chinese leadership don't necessarily think and have the same values you and I do. You're exactly right. And that's where it gets dicey because Russia and China, thereby their idea of deterrence is to stop America from coming to the defense of South Korea, Taiwan, Latvia, Ukraine. You pick the country where you think Russia or China might want to commit aggression. Their idea, the Chinese and Russians, do you think of deterrence as preventing us from coming to the defense of our friends? Their idea of nuclear weapons is to use them as a coercive power to basically get us to stand down. To give you an example, uh, our vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, John Hyten, and Brad Roberts, who's head of the Lawrence Livermore Nuclear Lab uh, World. Uh, CGSR, I think, is where he right. is. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a think tank about security issues. He came up with the phrase escalate to de-escalate or escalate to win. What that means simply is in a crisis, the Russians would threaten the use of nuclear weapons to say, we're willing to go way up the conflict ladder. You have to stand down and not come to the defense of your friends. Meaning we want an unfettered ability to commit aggression. That's a vastly different conception of nuclear weapons than ours, which is we're trying to prevent someone from getting attacked. The Russians are trying to make sure that if they attack somebody, no one comes after them. That's a very, very big difference. And as now our military is saying, we have never had a conventional conflict with a nuclear armed power. And now we have a potential to have two simultaneously that is Steve Blank and I have talked about. Steve used to be head of the Russian center up at the Army Carlisle War College. And he's now with the US Institute of Peace as well as the American Foreign Policy Council, he and I have been writing about the tremendous number of times the Russians and the Chinese are now cooperating militarily in the Middle East and in the Pacific and in other places. And my worry is they are going to, if one goes after somebody in Taiwan, the Russians may decide to bite off a little bit of Latvia and use it as a fait accompli saying, see, you didn't come to your defense, your friends, that would destroy NATO, which has been a long-term Russian objective. And China, of course, wants Taiwan back, but they don't want to go to end up in a war with us if that happens. So my worry is, you're exactly right, they see nuclear weapons as a diplomatic, political, and military tool to allow them to commit aggression without consequence. Yeah, if you think back to uh, when Donald Rumsfeld was Secretary of Defense, he, you know, very famously said, "Weakness is provocative." And as we That's think right. about, uh, as we think about reducing our own nuclear arsenal, we certainly understand our intent as Americans. You know, Americans are not inherently aggressive, and we're we're not expansionist. 
but our adversaries, the Russians and the Chinese, don't necessarily think like, like we do. No, they so, don't. So where our intentions may be good, the perception of the Russians and the Chinese may see that goodness as weakness instead. Well, certainly if you start talking about a Senator Markey of Massachusetts as proposed with a couple of other senators and House members to unilaterally, I, I, I want to emphasize, unilaterally eliminate all ICBMs, that's 400 missiles, cut the number of submarines from 12, they say down to eight, but there's a problem. Unless you bring in a new submarine for everyone that goes out, you're going to end up then with six submarines, which would cut the number of uh, missiles by another over about 120. And on top of which, you get rid of the cruise missile for the bomber, meaning for our bomber to hit the targets, they got to penetrate very significant air defenses. And also it takes a long time to get there. We would end up with a nuclear arsenal smaller than any other time since the 1950s at a time when China, as General Tim Ray, the head of Global Strike Command, said today, the Chinese are putting the nuclear pedal to the metal. They are going all out. And he says every time the intelligence community assesses what the Chinese are building, they, they come back and tell the commanders they're building more than we thought. And on top of which, which is this is quite interesting, since 1997, the United States has not built a single new missile, bomber, submarine, or cruise missile that's nuclear armed. The Russians have 26 new systems since Mr. Putin became president of Russia, 20 of them will be started and developed and deployed after the New START Treaty. And parenthetically, let me just argue that if our modernization program is too much, it's 95% of all our nuclear weapons are fit under the New START Treaty, only 45% of the Russians and 0% of the Chinese. So we are complying with the New START Treaty and I tell my arms control friends, how can you describe that as an arms race when it's perfectly consistent with the arms control treaty, which you all supported as making sure an arms race doesn't happen? And the issue is Russia simply has the majority of its nuclear weapons now outside the treaty and has just announced two new long range strategic nuclear systems that they are building. Wow. That, that's, uh, that's certainly uh, problematic. I'll tell you what, Peter, it's about halfway through the show. So why don't we go ahead and take a break and we'll be back in a minute. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the ANWA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. and we're back and welcome into NucleCast. I am your host, Adam Lowder, and I am speaking to Peter Husey today. 
Now, Peter, we were talking earlier about strategic stability, and I want to shift to a second chapter you wrote in the book, Guide to Nuclear Deterrence in the Age of Great Power Competition, and that was a discussion of the role the ICBM plays in our nuclear triad. Yes. Now, we're in the process of modernizing the ICBM and replacing the Minuteman III with the ground-based strategic deterrent. And the ICBM is perhaps, I, I think unquestionably, the most controversial leg of the triad right now. So if you could just give us a brief explanation for why modernization of GBSC of the, the ICBM is necessary and what is the rationale for keeping the ICBM? Well, your question is right on. Uh, the We have three alternatives in ICBMs. Get rid of them, take the old Minuteman and continue them, or build a new modular type system that is probably upwards of 70% cheaper to maintain and sustain and will meet the requirements of 2030, which is better accuracy, penetration capability, of which Minuteman does not. There's also one other thing that's quite fascinating. The cost of Minuteman replacement, even if technologically you could do it, is getting more and more expensive. In 2014, to keep it around for another 20 years would cost $5 billion more than uh, GBSD. In 2017, 18, 19, the number went up to $20 billion more. And now it's $38 billion more over the lifetime of Minuteman if you could continue it, what's called a service life extension program. So our choices now are build GBSD or go out of the nuclear business. And I pointed out the detriment of if you don't go to ICBMs. What's the value? The critics say in 1979 and 80, there was a false warning of Russian attack from the sea and from the coming over the poles with ICBMs and SLBMs. And this supposedly triggered a panic in the White House and that we almost launched by mistake uh, a retaliatory strike. None of that is true, except for there was two false warnings. And believe it or not, Barry Goldwater, a former senator from Arizona, and Gary Hart, a former senator from Colorado, uh, both ran for president. Uh, one as a candidate, in the primary and one is a ran against Lyndon Johnson. They wrote a report on this and they said, yes, there were two false reports, but guess what? In a matter of about 20 minutes, it was determined that it was false. It was a test message and there was a computer chip that was screwy that they fixed and guess what? It's never happened since. But that has been the main argument of the critics that a false warning could trigger a president to launch quickly because the ICBMs are in silos. The Russians know where the silos are. And if you didn't want to worry, if you're worried about losing the silos and the missiles in them, you'd launch quickly. But that assumes that an all-out Russian attack with 900 warheads to kill 400 missile silos and their 45 launch control centers, meaning you have to put two warheads on each target, that the Russians are crazy enough, either in a crisis or day-to-day, -to, -day, to launch what again, my friend Paul Nitze called the Armageddon option, meaning let's go commit suicide. So if you're not going to launch everything at us, then the ICBMs are perfectly survivable. And remember the old uh, FedEx ad, when it absolutely positively has to get there overnight. Well, this is when it absolutely positively has to get there in 30 minutes. What it does is hold at risk 
all the Russian military assets they value, I can take out in 30 minutes and you won't have left over after the conflict to engage in the hegemony and the, being the big shot of the world, you're not gonna have any military power to exercise. Well, that's not their objective. Their objective is to take over territory and get us to stand down. If we can take out their military capability and an ICBM given its accuracy, its promptness, it's very good command and control. It holds at risk the entire range of Russian targets. Now, people say, oh, that's too much. You don't need all that. The subs can do it or the bombers. And as Larry Welch, who was the former chief of staff of the Air Force and the head of STRATCOM, wrote an article just today in which he said, how do you know what deters Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin? They don't tell us. So what do we've got? We have 70 years of nuclear deterrence where never has a nuclear weapon be used against the United States or our allies, not once. And to give you an example, since the Cuban Missile Crisis, when John Kennedy said, thank God for Minuteman, that was my ace in the hole that stared down the Soviets. We have been on alert 72 million minutes and not once has the President of the United States ever ordered the launch of a ballistic missile armed with a nuclear weapon. And even more importantly, if we saw a launch from our satellites and our radars confirmed the direction it was coming, we would put together what's called a launch conference of all senior commanders and then a threat conference about what does this mean? As a former head of STRATCOM told me just the other day, we have never convened either in the entire history of the Cold War and in the higher history of the post-Cold War. So not once in the nuclear age, which means we're doing something right. So the question is, since Xi Jinping and Putin don't tell you, oh no, you don't have to do that. It worked for 70 years, but you can change and reduce your forces, uh, go on a holiday for a while, forget about modernization, uh, give away things for free, and that all work? I don't think so. You're, you really are betting. Uh, you're, you're not just going to Vegas. You're, you're putting your house, your kids, your wife, and everybody else you know on the table in a game of roulette. And I well, don't you, think that's a very smart thing to do. So ICBMs are stabilizing in that they're the heartland of America. And we're telling an adversary, you hit us here. It's not that we won't know who did it. We will. And it's not like we can say, well, what happened to a sub under the water? We don't know what happened. It didn't come home, but heck, we don't know who did it. So this would not be a surreptitious attack. It would not be a limited attack. It would not be something where we would say, gee, I wonder who did that. This is absolutely certain. We know you, the bad guy, did it, and we're coming back at you. So that's why ICBMs, since they were first deployed, the day John Kennedy announced the Cuban, the Russians had put missiles in Cuba, that's when Minuteman went on alert. And ever since that time, through the Middle East crisis and wars in Vietnam and wars in Korea and other parts of the world, the stabilizing nature of ICBMs have kept the peace. That's not something to uh, dismiss. And so there's no destabilizing nature as the chief of staff of the Air Force who recently retired told me, they are so complicate a Russian task and a Chinese task, they can't possibly take out all the missiles, all the launch control centers, all the sub bases, all the bomber bases, command and control, everything. They cannot do that simultaneously. 
So that's what deterrence is. And ICBMs are central to that because they're on alert 100% of the time. And let me conclude with this. I don't have to change a single thing with the ICBMs to deter. I don't have to put them on alert. I don't have to change their where they're deployed. Day to day, they're exactly the same. So the bad guy knows they don't have to look and say, well, what is America doing? They're, they're, I can put my bombers in the air and they know, well, wait, what are they doing? They're signaling. And our submarines are already at sea and I can put a couple more at sea, but that again is a signal that we're serious. You know, you bring up a great point and something else that I often think about is, as I look at Russian and Chinese modernization efforts and the Russians and the Chinese are clearly ahead of us in nuclear modernization. Yes. And, and what I ask myself is if, if ICBMs are irrelevant, why is the Russian and Chinese modernization program focused on modernizing their own ICBMs? Yes, to the great, great, that's very true. The Russians have always looked at ICBMs, particularly big missiles with a lot of warheads as first strike weapons. And when Reagan came in, the Russians were on pace to build up to 12,000 deployed strategic nuclear weapons under the SALT II treaty. We could also go up to that number, which we did. But Reagan said, I'm gonna reverse the whole paradigm. Instead of having arms control allow a buildup, I'm gonna take arms control to cut forces from 12 to 6,000 and then to 3,500 at the same time modernized. So what I got left will be even better than what I started with. And that was called the start process. And he started with INF, which was the European missiles that the Russians were deploying by the about 2000 of them. And we had none, they, and the nuclear freeze was gonna freeze a horrible imbalance in place. And Reagan opposed the freeze. And as you remember the 1984 election kind of was a referendum on that. And it was 49 states to one in the District of Columbia. That was the verdict. And we completed the modernization effort. And lo and behold, Mr. Gorbachev, particularly at a number of the Geneva summits, uh, went back and forth with the president. My last, uh, Bud McFarland told me they went back and forth 15 times over missile defense and STI. And whether or not, if we just got rid of STI, the Russians would say, okay, I'll cut the weapons, we'll cut, we'll do arms control. And every time Reagan came back and said, SDI is my insurance policy in case there's a nutcase out there who launches nuclear weapons at us. And Gorbachev eventually gave up. And that shortly thereafter, you got INF. And then two years after that, you got the, excuse me, four years after that, you got the start one that reduced weapons to 6,000 and then start two that got them down to 3,500. Even though the Russians didn't sign it, they eventually agreed to the Moscow Treaty that brought everything down to 2,200. Now, I'm assuming the Russians are abiding by this, and I, I, don't, I don't think they are, but I'm not sure the extent to which they're not. And then under the New START Treaty that Obama put in in 2010, they've come down to 1,550, though you can have as many bombers as you can fit on, as many weapons as you can fit on 60 bombers. But that's an extraordinary change. We have taken tens of thousands of nuclear weapons out of the equation, but modernized at the same time, proving modernization is not inconsistent with greater stability, greater deterrence, and reductions through arms control. So if, if 
we're advocating for modernization of the ICBM. One of the, you know, the primary arguments uh, against ICBM modernization is the cost. Yes. Could you perhaps take a, we, we've got a few minutes left in the show. So could you perhaps put into context what yes. that cost compares to? Because, right. you know, it's it, the, U, the, the U.S. federal government deals in trillions of dollars. And no, nobody has any sense of what a trillion no. dollars looks like. A trillion dollars is a million times a million. Okay, let's. I don't want to. I know numbers are hard to listen to and understand, but let's make it very simple. GBSD is going to last for 55 years. The cost of that missile and the guidance set and the propulsion, everything, is an investment over its lifetime of an additional 1.5 billion a year. People can understand a billion and a half. We spend 11 billion dollars a year going to the movies by getting in a car and going to a literally a theater. So that's an interesting comparison. If I did Minuteman, man, it would cost me almost twice as much, two and a half billion dollars a year. Now, what about all nuclear? All nuclear weapon stuff is 43 billion. That includes 20 billion of the Department of Energy. And if I added up the new submarine Columbia class, the new bomber B-21, the new missile ICBM GBSD, the cruise missile for the bomber and the missile for the submarine, the D-5, I get in the year we're in now, $8.5 billion. That's it, $8.5 billion is the modernization. And in the budget that President Biden has just submitted, it'll go up to about 11 billion. And that's 100% of the bombers, even though they're all gonna be conventional too. Only a, a portion of the new B-21 is gonna be nuclear. And the nuclear component is about 3% of the bomber costs, not more than that. So overall, you're talking about spending 43 billion for everything, command and control, warheads, uh, infrastructure, maintaining the current systems and buying the new ones, which are gonna happen between 2029 and 2042. Think of that. 43 billion and then the ICBM portion of it is two and a half billion, which is the budget this year. And then compare that to a defense budget of 750 billion and a federal budget of 6.2 trillion. We're gonna be spending, uh, my fucking do the math. It's less than two tenths of 1% on ICBMs and about 6% of the defense budget on all nuclear. As General Mattis said, when asked, is nuclear deterrence affordable? He said survivable, survivability is affordable. So basically you've heard trillion dollar figures for the ice for the all nuclear. What they're talking about is over 30 years, if you add 3% growth per year and add in all the cats and dogs and maintaining the old stuff and the new stuff, modernization is about 400 billion and about 600, 700 billion over 30 years is sustaining and operating everything. And they assume that operating the new stuff will be more expensive or will be actually more expensive than the old stuff now, which is getting very expensive to operate. I've done a lot of analysis and my view is we're gonna spend somewhere around $800 billion to modernize, sustain and operate a brand new nuclear deterrent over the next 30 years. You know, I'll give you an interesting uh, bit of, context here. So I was looking at, at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which runs 
Medicare and Medicaid. And I was looking, I came across some data on their waste, fraud, and abuse figures. Yes. And maybe you knew this already, <laughs> but they estimate that the two programs, Medicare and Medicaid, lose about 70, that's seven zero yes, right. billion dollars per year to waste, fraud, and abuse. And yes, that's true. It's, there's another figure that's even more interesting, but it's, it's from the same one you've got. Because I've done this defense stuff for so many years, you have to know the budget of the United States because there are always people, the critics are always claiming we're spending too much. And my view is okay, and I can, I know the new, I know the budget of the United States. Uh, I think as well as anybody, though it's it's amazingly complex. But you're right. Do you know how much money the government spends and sends checks to the wrong people? Meaning it's like food stamp fraud, and Medicaid fraud, and Med Medicare fraud, but also just sending stuff to the wrong people, and. Oh. How much is it? $147 billion a year, meaning over 30 years, you're talking about $4.2 trillion, which would pay for five times the nuclear modernization effort. So if we could go find 20% of that fraud per year, and you, you see stories about Medicare fraud, the guy, you know, people being arrested, and there's ways to do it. I, I've talked to the, the fraud people in credit card companies. And they say, look, the government of the United States does not manage itself like a business. And if you did that, we could take 20% of that fraud and that would pay for the entire nuclear modernization effort. So why not, why not do it? Because it's, as the Geico guy says, it's free money or easy money. And as we wrap it up, I think that the, the takeaway here is nuclear weapons are imminently affordable. Yes, I would agree. Well, Peter, we had a great show today, and I want to thank you for being here. Uh, we very much enjoyed having you, and I want to thank the audience and listeners for joining us on Nuclecast, and we look forward to uh, seeing you on the next episode. <laughs>